0: Uh, this class is going to be on for today, and on Friday, going to be on um, care of the patient before, during, and after surgery, and uh, we're going to go for till about 11 today, and then we'll stop, and you'll do your paper exchanges that's in the calendar there I saw. I hope you're ready for that, and then on Friday, we have uh, two hours of that, and then uh, we're going to do Finish the class and also do a uh, little, small group work on on Friday. But we're going to get started talking about <laughs> surgery today. Uh, how many people here have ever had a surgical experience for themselves? You have. You have. Okay. Anybody want to describe it? <laughs> what it was like? What you remember of it? Ash. For me, I, James, I, I like Vicodin. Vicodin. Oh. Before the surgery? Wow. Yeah, the vike's good. <laughs> I like the vike. Yeah. Brianna? I had Uh huh, an appendectomy with a laparoscope. Yeah, uh-huh. laparoscope. And I was in the pediatric ward because I was probably like 14 or 15 and they were doing. Okay. Okay. Now she was talking about her her memory as 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 a 14 year old being on a, being on a, an adolescent a, an adolescent on a pediatric unit and really not getting adequate pain control. So that's kind of her memory of that. And as we talk about uh, adequate pain medication, um, you know, we have to see where you really have to look at a patient's weight in order to determine. Um, how much they need and also sometimes surgeons have been known not to prescribe correct amounts of, of medicine too and then as a nurse you have to be an advocate to say look the correct dose is 0.1 milligrams per kilogram of for morphine for example and you're only giving half of that no wonder this person is in is in pain any other memories of it um, Erica I was in the LR got transferred to room. uh-huh You have no memory of it. Yeah, one of the things that uh, you have to remember when you're talking with patients, after they've been given a lot of the medications, Versed and things like that, they're amnesiac drugs, meaning that while you're talking and answering questions and doing all of that, when you ask people about it later, they have no memory of it. The last (laughs) thing they remember was saying, we're going to put the medicine in the the line now, and that's the last thing they remember. And the next thing is like a, a hunk of your life is gone, and you're in a recovery room. Any other memories? Anybody was little when they had a surgery? I wasn't little, but when I had my wisdom controlled, they gave me Valium. Uh huh. And halfway through the surgery my IV clotted and I woke up. And so when they were done with surgery, I ended up with three IVs in each arm. Okay, her IV clotted during the procedure and you and you woke. I woke up were you in pain during it? During it? Yeah. Yeah. Now, wisdom teeth things are, are things where you're, you're generally doing a light sedation, right. so it's more likely that you'll come out of it. There was a story in the news, uh, I think it was a week or two ago, about reports of people who said they woke up during surgery. And that's one. When we talk about fears of surgery, that is that is one of them. Do you remember the story, or you have a personal... Anecdote. Okay, um, I woke up during surgery. I think there was a there was a movie out earlier this year or late last year that actually went into that fear because, as most horror movies do, they try to play on people's fears of men with masks and axes and waking up with sur- <laughs> waking up during surgery. So, um, but interestingly, is that while some people said that it was painful, a lot of them said that it wasn't really that it was painful, but it was frightening to them because they knew what was going on and they could feel that something was happening but they weren't actually in in pain from the from the experience so a- another thing to keep in mind as we talk about this is that as a nurse you are going to become very very comfortable with the idea of sending people off to surgery uh, helping them recover and taking care of them the, what you always have to remember though this is a big deal for the person and their family and so even though it can become routine for you do not let it become routine try not to let it become routine in the way you deal with your patients and your families this is very frightening for a lot of people high anxiety lots of fears and you have to always try to keep empathizing with their point of view as someone who has not been through this or has not seen many many uh, of these surgeries plus you're not the one on the table; they are too. So keep that keep that in mind too. But there is a tendency for a lot of times in nursing, as we get into certain routine things, where you find people start becoming dismissive of patients, or they don't think about how it, how they're being perceived uh, by their patients. So I want you to keep keep that in mind as we go through. Is this going to work today? Yes. Okay. Our outline is pre-op. Oh no. Why is it doing that? (laughs) What's that? Is there something you can do? Do you have to turn it off and then turn it back on, or? Oh, really? I don't see anything. Did <laughs> I change anything? I just turned it off? Yeah. Did that do it? Yeah. yeah, okay. All right. So preoperative... Assessment, prepping patients, and then post-operative. I'm also going to talk about intraoperative experience, although I'm not going to have any test questions on that. But uh, you just should know, because occasionally uh, you will get the opportunity to go into an an OR, and I just want to tell you about some of the principles that are involved, uh, why things are done the way they are in the the OR. Um, Some of your surgical experiences in your senior year, you might get a chance to go into the OR at where we are at down at Dupont, they're not real crazy about students coming in. We've been turned down a couple times, but sometimes if you um, if you had a chance to to experience something, then they seem to be more willing to let you in. They're mostly afraid of peop- students passing out and falling into the surg- into the surgery or or dro- dropping a junior mint into there or something <laughs> like that. So, oh. This probably wouldn't work as well when the door's closed, okay There we go. We talk about this as the perioperative nursing because it, it covers both before, during, and after the <coughs> surgery. so when you hear the word perioperative, that's what they're referring to. and from a nursing perspective, we have we have three roles that you really have to think about: the teaching role, your assessment, and a big part of it is preventing complications so And that begins actually before the surgery, helping prevent complications uh, along with the actions that you do afterwards. Uh, This is a painting from Thomas Aikens. uh, It's called The Surgery. It was painted in Philadelphia in the uh, late 1800s. if you... It's a little hard to see in the dark. Let me turn the light off for a second so you can see this. This painting is is on display downtown Philadelphia at the College of Physicians. Uh, there was some controversy about it last year because it was sold, it was going to be sold for $60 million because the, co- the college wanted that money. <laughs> uh, but there was a big uh, hue and cry about it because this is uh, a very classic painting. Uh, if you notice, there's... Uh, a whole bunch of people real close here, eating junior mints, um, looking into the looking into the surgery, and there was a window at the t- at the, the the surgical theater was what they called it, and they still sometimes refer to it as a theater. Uh, there was a skylight that let sunlight in, and so surgeries could only be done during the daylight hours when sunlight was bright enough to shine in so the surgeon could see what they were they were doing um, You can see that uh, antisepsis and things like that wasn't really very well understood. Uh, There were some preliminary um, things being learned about cleanliness. Washing seemed to help uh, post-op outcomes. And so they were starting to use some of it, some of this. Uh, One of the earliest surgical uh, experiences used a a mist of, um, it was like a, Alcohol solution or something, and just kept kept spraying it over the surgical area, and they were finding that patients were living longer. So, but they really didn't quite understand um, uh, the importance of aseptic technique, as you can see by everybody standing around here. Um, but this is how this is how physicians learned. They they would watch the surgery. the The surgery today uh, is still very much done the same way. There's usually a surgeon's assistants, nurses uh, to assist. There's scrub, a scrub nurse and a circulating nurse. The scrub nurse is the person who's up by the table and doing and passing the immediate uh, supplies. The circulating nurse is the person who runs or can run around the room and get other things and kind of keep general order in the room. Um, in this case, this person here might be what would be the equivalent today of the anesthesiologist a lot of times what they all they had was ether uh which they would put in a cloth and just put it over your head and you would and you would pass out from that uh and that and that actually made surgery a lot more um bearable than before where you might get a shot of whiskey um if you go uh, to the civil war museum uh, out in harrisburg there's a scene there's a diorama that shows a civil war surgery and And they actually show bullets, lead bullets, that they had people bite down on uh, as they cut off their limbs and things like that. The good old days. Um, But what you see here and what happens today is actually uh, an an extension of everything. And in in a way, a lot of things haven't changed. In a lot of medical hospitals that are part of medical schools, they do have, still have viewing areas. Uh, that you can look down into the, into the OR. They're usually behind glass, so you can't drop junior mints down into the surgery. But you, um, you can see, so if you ever get an opportunity if you're down, any of the downtown ho- hospitals and you want to see. One of the interesting things, though, is that you often, nowadays, on a lot of surgeries, don't see very much. You know, you talk about the laparoscopic surgery. In the, in the days before, when you had an, append- an append- appendectomy, you got splayed open, and everybody could come around and look inside. Now you can't. Now there's two little scars and everybody watches on television. So you don't really need to be in the room anymore to see what's happening. Uh, Why do people get surgery? Well there's lots of different reasons for it. Some cases it's diagnostic. If somebody has a has a tumor or something growing inside, uh, they need to see is this benign growth or is this malignant? So they can they can do that. Or sometimes just re- the act of removing a tumor is part of the care as we later <laughs> uh, next month we'll be talking about cancer you'll see that the very first uh, medical treatment for cancer uh, in many cases any any of the tumors that can be that can be removed uh, are done so with with surgery uh, sometimes it's to restore uh, parts of the parts of the body um, any anything from plastic surgery uh, to reconstructive surgeries after after injuries palliative what does palliative mean hmm? doesn't cure but what's it what's its purpose palliative means. Comfort, right? And so there's some surgeries where even though the person isn't going expected to live uh, any longer after the surgery because of pressure on nerves or or difficulties in breathing or difficult changes difficulties in circulation, they might remove something, move things around uh, for that. There's also transplant surgeries where organs are being replaced. kidney Kidney transplants are becoming. near routine now uh, in the uh, their ability to do it other things like heart transplants are uh, can be done but they're a lot more a lot more difficult there's heart and lung together transplants liver um, not all organs can be transplanted Um, and there's a whole lot of other issues um, with transplant surgery as far as getting the organs getting them in and then surviving the um, recovery process uh, one of the other things you have to look at when you have your patients getting surgery is that what kind of risk are they at? Uh, you know, if you have somebody who's uh, just doing an elective surgery, they, they've, a, a need has been determined, you can pick a surgical date, you can lead up to it, you can get, you know, the, you can, some, in some cases, people will have blood uh, banked ahead of time, several weeks ahead of the surgery so that they need blood during the surgery. It will be there. they have, a ti- they have time to, to, to do teaching. Uh, that's you know not urgent and we just call it elective. Some people though are going to be getting emergency surgery and that means they've usually faced some kind of trauma. Uh, they need surgery to stop a, a major internal bleeding, for example, is very very common and you don't have time to do any teaching, any preparation, getting anything ready for them. The, the, asking them to be MPO is not, uh, doesn't doesn't uh, apply in this situation. And so when you have somebody getting an emergency surgery, the risks of the surgery itself go way, way up. The, the more you can prepare, the more you're ready for it, the risks of the surgery go way, way down. So when you look at Uh, outcomes of of surgery. Uh, It's a big difference whether it's an elective or or an emergency surgery. Usually in an emergency surgery, you're dealing with people who are often have lost a lot of blood already, so they're not in real good shape even when the surgery begins. Also, surgery can be minor to major. Uh, You're talking about wisdom teeth extraction. That comes under usually a description of a minor surgery because it's easy to get to we didn't have to cut through your cheek to get to the wisdom tooth we just opened your mouth um, but anytime you have to start going through the body to get to a part uh, that increases the um, extensiveness of the surgery so so the idea of the laparoscopic surgery which is becoming more and more common the purpose of that is is to reduce the trauma of it if you think about somebody being in a car accident and being ripped to shreds, and you, then you think about, okay, that person has to then recover from that. They have to; those wounds have to heal. Uh, every they have to recover from uh, j- just from that physical trauma. The tissues have to regenerate if they're able to. In surgery, you can think of it as aseptic trauma. You know, the more scarring you do, the more you cut into a person, the more trauma that that person then is experiencing, and the more they're going to have to go through to recover. Now, it is aseptically done, so we don't have the risks of uh, infections and things as great as if you were um, cut open with a knife and a stabbing, for example. That, I doubt that the uh, the uh, person who stabbed you sterilized his switchblade first. But you, so you have to, you have those ad- additional complications. But in, in uh, surgery, uh, for example, anything that has to cut the chest, well, some some cardiac surgeries that requires cutting the cutting the chest, anything that goes into the spine, um, you know, really increases the risks of complications, uh, increases the time the surgery takes. Anytime the longer you are under anesthesia. Uh, the greater the risks for complications uh, from that surgery. One thing, you know, and we've talked about this before, is you never say to patients, everything is going to be fine because you don't know it because sometimes people will have very bad reactions to anesthesia. And the longer they're under anesthesia, the longer it goes, the more likely things are to to go wrong. And also we look at their presenting condition. Uh, Not everybody is a healthy specimen when they come in. So they might come in for... Uh, the appendectomy, for example. But it, it's one thing if you're 14 years old and, and, and healthy and, and um, with good nutritional status and, and no other complications in your life. But what if you're 87 years old and you have diabetes and uh, a little touch of cardi- uh, congestive heart failure? Now you're not such a great surgical risk. In fact, some people are so bad that they, they won't even do the surgery, even though they might benefit from it because the risk is, is just too great. And We see this a lot, in, you might see this a lot in the elderly. You see it sometimes in people who are uh, in the middle of cancer, uh, cancer treatments and things like that. They may have to delay uh, surgeries or not do them at all because the person the, would not be expected to even survive the, the experience. Uh, these are the things that put people at risk, the age extremes. So little tiny babies, uh, sometimes surgeries like some of the cardiac surgeries for babies, they don't do them when they're, they don't do them when they're just a few days old. They might say we're going to have to wait until you're a few months old before we can do the surgery because you're just too fragile, it's too difficult, everything's too small uh, at, that, at that age, and they'll just try to manage the, the baby symptomatically until they can get big enough to do the surgery and at the other end when you start getting to people in their 80s and 90s they then be also become a very poor surgical risk and so in, in a lot of cases they decide is it really worth doing the surgery what will be what would be the benefit and if the risks of death are so great uh, you know what's uh, what should they do uh, accompany any uh, illness uh, sometimes surgeries have to be done even though you were in the, you have let's say you have the flu or something and then are in a car accident well normally you wouldn't do an elective surgery for somebody who was in the middle middle of the flu they have the car accident no choice so they're again they're not they're not real healthy but they have to do it anyway uh the folks who are obese are at greater risk because the surgery takes longer you have to if time you have to especially if you have to open them up uh, you have to go through layers and layers of fat and if you've ever done any work with meat that has a lot of fat in it it 's very greasy, and then the surgery becomes more difficult it 's harder to handle things uh, the, the The tissue has to be sp- uh, spread <laughs> apart. Uh, just getting people on and off the table becomes more difficult maintaining their oxygenation becomes more difficult and this is becoming a growing problem I guess that's not sounds like a pun, but it 's not um, <laughs> in the in the u s with people who are very, very large and trying to get them in and out of surgery. And as they need surgeries, uh, it's, they become poor risks and, and are more likely to have uh, complications during the surgery and are more likely to have a poor post-surgical outcome. Uh, and so this is one of those things that sometimes we don't think about. Uh, hospitals are now are having to invest a lot of money in just the machinery to move people on and off gurneys and onto, onto OR tables because you can't, the, in the days when you could just take two, two aids and move them on are, are gone for some, for some people. Also, folks who are malnourished, if you have anybody who's been in some kind of experience where they, they're not able to get adequate nutrition, very, very low protein levels, for example, low, and they're not good surgical risks because your body has to recover from the surgery. One of the things you're going to notice is when we ta- start talking about the post-op period is after surgery, people's temperatures go up. It's not a fever. It's not a sign of infection. Why do they go up? Why does your temp... Why do... Yeah. Sometimes dehydration... but Generally, we're hydrating people pretty well with IV fluids. Right. The body is working hard to try to recover from this injury that the person has done. So it actually raises your metabolic rate to do that. So if you're malnourished and you're raising, you're trying to raise your metabolic rate, you don't have the energy there. You may not have the glucose, not the proteins and things that have to be there in order for uh, new tissue to be uh, to, to regenerate and uh, close, the, close the wound. Uh, medications that people are on, and I've got a list there coming up that shows you the, the medications we have to uh, worry about before surgery because they can all affect either your ability during the surgery or will affect your uh, recovery uh, in one way or another. Uh, The other thing is what we sometimes don't think about is people who have impaired mental status. If you have somebody who's paranoid schizophrenic and you say, well, I want to take this knife and open you up and repair this, uh, they often don't understand that real well. (laughs) And so you can have a real, you know, it can be very difficult when you work. For those of you, uh, well, next, year where you're gonna be working in psych settings and you'll see that you know people with psychiatric illnesses get sick and need surgeries just like everybody else and it can be very very difficult Um, even though they may not be considered competent to make informed decisions somebody still has to make the and somebody can make the decision uh, for them that's appropriate but you still have to let them understand what's going on. You still have to get them into the surgery and get them out and recover. Uh, And it can be it can be real real challenge. There we go. All right. So preoperative phase, there's three parts to it. Assessment of the readiness of the person for the surgery, the teaching that you have to do before the surgery and then there are the physical things that you have to do with the patient and with, the, uh, with the, the facility that you're at to get them ready for the surgery preoperatively. So let's talk about the assessment of their own, the patient's own readiness. Most of the case, what we're talking about here is people who are getting an elective surgery. You have the time to take the history, you have the time to ask the questions and do all the assessments. Most surgeries are done that way. Most surgeries are elective to some degree, and there is, is time um, beforehand. So in our nursing history, we particularly want to know about people's previous experiences. We want to know what, they, what things were, were like for them. We also need to know about any other kind of health conditions that are, that are going on ahead of time. Generally, the surgeons are going to know about the person's medical history. But sometimes they don't. Sometimes patients forget to tell them something really significant, like I take a seizure, anticonvulsant, <laughs> and things like that. So you would need to know those kinds of things. And if you find out something that isn't previously known, it's your, op- your responsibility to tell the, tell the surgeon. The other thing is we want to know about not only people's um, readiness, um, um, physical readiness, but also their emotional readiness. Do they understand what the surgery is? You know, I talked about our, our uh, friend with the paranoid schizophrenia. He probably would not be able to have an informed consent. Why? Why, couldn't he, he, why wouldn't he have? Yeah. Mentally fit, or there's another word for it. You're right. Starts with a C. Competent. So you're not considered competent to make a decision. So in order to have informed consent, you not only have to be of legal age, but you have to be competent to make that decision. So what happens when somebody is incompetent? So just going to ask. Just gonna ask. Okay, can somebody answer Gene's question? Yes. Mm-hmm. Somebody, with a pa- somebody with a power of attorney. What if you don't have somebody? What would happen then? Sometimes they, yeah. If there's a spouse or next of kin, if those aren't available, the cor- courts can appoint can appoint a, a guardian. But what if it's like emergency, surgery, no, emergency surgery, you don't need it. Okay. Emergency surgery, it, it is assumed there is an assumption that people would consent. That most people would say, "I'd rather be alive than dead," and so, so. If they have a DNR and they're driving around in the car, which is unlikely, but if they were a DNR who's driving around and the surgeon doesn't know it, you can't be held responsible for it. So if you're DNR, I recommend getting a tattoo that says DNR on your chest so then they don't do that. When I was in the Persian Gulf, I wrote on a marker on myself, oh, pause, on my chest, just in case my dog tag got lost. <laughs> I'm not as dumb as I look. The other thing is we have to, so, so people have to be informed of it. We also need to investigate their fears and anxiety. So let's go back and look at the history in more, more in depth. Here's some of the things that we'd want to we want to know about because they can affect how well somebody does through through surgery. So uh, allergies they have um, to any kind of drugs in particular is what we're looking for there. A lot of people have anti- uh, antibi- dr- an- <laughs> allergies to antibiotics, and so uh, obviously those are often prescribed postoperatively, and so we'd want to know that ahead of time. Also. The, the meds that we talked about, and I'll show you the list of the meds in a, in a second, people who smoke are a different surgical risk because of the, the vasoconstrictive uh, aspects of the smoking. Um, they sometimes have uh, poor uh, oxygen saturation, and that can and also the effects of nicotine can the anesthesiologist needs to know because people who get who are nicotine addicts uh, need different uh, anesthesia than those who don't. Uh, people who use uh, alcohol can have poor livers. A lot of the uh, anesthetic agents are metabolized in the liver, and so the, they would need to know that too. We also want to know about people's previous experiences—not not only with illness, but with surgeries too. Because somebody who's been through surgery before can have a different experience. It may be positive; they may have had a good experience with the surgery, but they also may have a negative experience. You know, we talked—you talked about Miranda talked about how you um, have this, you know, memories of the pain that you experienced. And so that's not a good memory of it, and we'd want to then spend maybe more time saying how we're not going to let that happen uh, this time. Uh, We want to know people's mental status, how well they're coping with it. When you start talking about surgery, the word surgery puts a lot of fear into people. A lot of people get very, very upset, very, very nervous. Um, They fear death. They fear pain. Uh, and so trying to talk calmly about some of the surgeries, why something's done, what it's going to do for you, sometimes can be more difficult. So if you have somebody who seems really stressed, doesn't have a lot of support, uh, they're, they're alone, for example, they're in a new town, they don't have any, any relatives or, um, or other relationships, or people around to help them, uh, they can be very scared. Uh, so you have to th- think about their, not only look at them, but who do they have to help them. Uh you know, you'll notice when you go to when you go to the hospital, uh there is a family waiting room. Every hospital that has surgery has a family waiting room because it's something that we all do when someone is in the hospital. If somebody goes in for uh, an x-ray or something, the family doesn't huddle around and wait, you know, wait for the person to go in and get their x ray. But when people go in for surgery, the families come. People take off from work, they go and they wait, and they wait even though there's nothing they can do during the surgery but wait, they sit and they wait for the news to find out what the outcome is. So that, so having somebody there waiting for you after the surgery is also uh, important. The other thing is their ability to understand. Do they know, can they, can they understand really what the surgery is for, what its benefits are, and what its risks are. Uh, not everybody uh, is real intelligent. And some people that's... They have a very very strange understanding about what's happening. Uh, it may be, They may be very confused. And so you need to make sure that, and, and by asking them questions, open-ended questions about what the surgery is for, uh, what they hope to get out of it, what they think the risks are, give you a better idea. And if they don't seem to understand, then you have to spend some time. The other issue that we face a lot is people who don't speak English. So you have to make sure that if you have anybody who's not an English speaker primary that somebody who knows medical terminology is acting as a translator most hospitals now have phone systems you can call a number and you have two two headsets and you can talk and they can talk and the translator will go back and forth it's a better thing than having family members you have to use family members sometimes in a pinch but what's the problem with using family members as translators yes Right. They may not understand some of the terminology. What else? Jax? How they translate things can be, like, they can influence how things are translated. Right. They might, if they are in favor of the surgery, they might play it up and not talk about the risks. If they're against the surgery, they may not mention any of the benefits, and you may not know if you don't know any of the language that they're, that they're speaking. So it's a better idea to have a neutral party doing it uh, doing the translation any other comments on that okay. so so think about um, language uh, things and also the the the, uh, the any kind of cultural considerations about how people um, f- look towards medicine US medicine um, understanding about the whole thing uh, you know we sometimes we have people who come to the hospital who've never been to the US and then their only introduction to the U.S. is is the hospital system, which is a whole subculture of its own. And they may not be familiar with it. And there are certain expectations in our culture about how people are supposed to act uh, before, during, and after surgery. And they may not be aware of that. Some of the d- diseases that you would particularly want to investigate, ask about the history find out what the person's current status is would be anybody with any kind of lung issues. COPD, asthma in particular uh, would be two pulmonary conditions that we would worry um, a lot about. Anybody with any kind of heart problems, histories of heart defects, you'll find a lot of people start wringing their hands and getting very worried if somebody has a heart murmur. Uh, Very minor murmurs are considered normal, considered part of uh, the normal population and don't really seem to have any greater risk with surgery than anybody else. But you'll often see when somebody hears a murmur, a lot of hand-wringing, worrying about what you know. Can this person get the surgery or not? Uh, Ninety-nine times out of a hundred, uh, you know, they seem that there's no never an issue with it. But everybody worries about it anyway. But if you have somebody who's had rheumatic fever or something, has had prolapsed valves, uh, had cardiac surgery. Now they do become a greater risk now it is more difficult for them to to get through that surgical experience, and so that 's something that uh, really needs to be known. Anybody with any kind of kidney problems, any uh, people with circulation problems, uh, any kind of valve issues uh, in the uh, in the veins, for example, um, endocrine problems you know particularly we think of um, Anybody with cystic fibrosis, anybody uh, with a metabolic issue like uh, diabetes, really it changes your, uh, the way you can be, uh, your particularly your recovery from the surgery. And, of course, liver, any kind of liver issues. You have people with uh, any kind of cirrhosis, even mild cirrhosis, can affect how well they can even tolerate the anesthesia because the liver has to metabolize that, uh, that drug. Medications. Uh, These are medications that we definitely want to know about if anybody's taking them before surgery. Uh, Corticosteroids, diuretics, all of these things, because they either will affect you during the surgical experience during anesthesia, or can affect your ability to recover. So, for example, corticosteroids. What that may not affect them so much during the surgery, but what happen what can happen afterwards if you're on corticosteroids. Anybody know? Yeah. Right. It can mask infections. Uh, you can you can so somebody can have a post operative infection that could be that could be masked. Diuretics, of course, can, can affect um, people's hydration status. Uh, also a lot of diuretics are used for what? Hypertension, right. So if you've got somebody who now is post operatively can't take the diuretic. Now you're looking at blood pressure issues you know that c- that can change uh, insulin kind of it's kind of uh, easy to understand the any other any other kind of blood pressure medications over and above diuretics uh, Mycin antibiotics a lot of people have um, uh, who who have allergies to those we would want to know about anybody who's taking tranquilizers uh, because that can affect the way you uh, respond to anesthesia. And I, and I also added here, uh, one of the things in, in elective surgeries, they tell people for, usually for a month before surgery that you should not take any aspirin or ibuprofen. And in fact, before the surgery, they're, you're often going to be asked that question, did you take any aspirin or ibuprofen? And in some cases, they may cancel a surgery if you say yes. So it's important to to, to tell people before the surgery um, that a month beforehand they should hide the bottles or throw them out or do something don't have them around so you don't accidentally take one why is the reason what's the what's the cause for concern it can affect clotting yeah and so so after you're doing major surgery on somebody something that decreases your ability to clot is not a good thing so we would want to then not have somebody taking taking aspirin yes yes you? you can take tylenol but I wouldn't take uh, a leave, which is naproxen. I wouldn't take ibuprofen or aspirin. Yes, but you don't get to sign it. <laughs> Some other things to look at before surgery, if anybody has an active fever, you, you're, uh, usually in most cases the surgery would be canceled and they would wait for you to recover. Remember I talked about our, uh, somebody with the flu. Anybody who's pregnant, very, very difficult decision to make whether or not you can do surgery because most of the anesthetics and things that would be used would be harmful to the fetus. So it can be very, very difficult to do surgery. Sometimes they can do them by using spinal blocks and things like that to, uh, so that surgeries can be done if absolutely necessary. Uh, but generally, they they're, uh, try to be avoided uh, if at all, all possible. Anybody who comes in with any kind of breast, you know, it doesn't do any good to shine it on there. If you do any kind of respiratory difficulties. You see that, look? Respiratory difficulties. Uh, anybody with as, an, have any asthma attack or is in the middle of uh, COPD, they're probably not going to even make it through the surgery. So you can't, you, so you can't do it. And also, a lot of times they're going to do blood tests. Somebody will be asked to come in a couple days before the surgery, and they're going to draw CBC and they're going to be looking at their uh, red blood count. They're going to be looking at their and looking at their hematocrit, in particular because both of those things need to be in normal ranges before they do the surgery, because they're very likely to come down. And one of the problems is if you've got... One of the things that they sometimes do before elective surgeries is bank blood. They ask people to come in beforehand and bank the blood. The problem is is when you do that, when you do the pre-op uh, CBC, they've got a low... They end up with low uh, red blood counts and low hematocrits, which kind of dece- defeats the purpose, I think. So, yeah. If somebody does, does bank blood, don't be surprised if you see the lower numbers. They'll usually go ahead and do the surgery anyway. Uh, we talked about informed consent. Uh, just some things to remember. Uh, it should be written, and kept in emergency situations where they might just do it quickly and orally and ask somebody if they, uh, if they agree. And then that would be written down by saying it was done with a verbal agreement with a witness. Uh, informed consents need to be done by the surgeon. The person doing the surgery is supposed to be the one doing the explanation of the purpose of the surgery and what options the person has and what expected outcomes there would be. They do not let somebody hand you an informed consent and say, go into the room and get consent from Mrs. Smith. You can't do it. It's not legal. The person doing, this, doing the surgery is, is the one who has to has to do it now i also say as a nurse you should be also listening in because you want to make sure that the surgeon is explaining it carefully enough Uh, you'll notice that on form consent forms while they'll, they'll give the formal name of the surgery they also are supposed to write in lay terms what the surgery is going to do so like say might say appendectomy and then underneath it will say removal of the appendix And then the surgeon would explain why this is needed and and what the benefit is and what the risk would be if you didn't do it. So any kind of invasive surgery, so that usually means cutting into somebody. Wisdom teeth, for example, they usually don't get informed consent because it's not considered that as invasive. Even though you're being sedated mildly because they're not cutting into you to do it, they usually don't get informed consent for something like that. Anytime anesthesia is going to be used where you're going to be uh, uh, out uh, for a period of time, uh, they'll, they'll use it. And it's kind of a judgment call. If it's anything considered greater than a small risk, they'll ask for it. Uh, and also any surgeries or any kind of care where radiation is used. In some, kind, in some cancer surgeries, they, and during the procedure, they may also do, um, uh, put in radiation implants, for example, uh, and that would require a se- that actually requires a, se- a separate informed consent for having that um, radioactive material. We talked about what you need. You need to have the competence. You also need to be able to understand what's being said to you. So that gets into the people who are, have a language barrier. They have to that has to be overcome in order for them to comprehend what you're doing. Um, what has to be in the consent? The procedure itself what alternatives there are. So for example, with an appendectomy, your alternative is not doing it, but there's a risk of a rupture, and so that could be deadly. And so, uh, but in other cases and other surgeries where there may be other surgeries that could be done, Um, Down at DuPont, there was a problem with a cardiac surgeon who was doing cardiac surgeries on children without telling the families what alternate surgeries could be done. He was recommending certain surgeries, but not really giving them fully informed consent. He ended up getting fired from the hospital uh, for that uh, because he was essentially doing research without without, uh, informed consent. People also have to know that they have the ability to refuse. They can say no to a surgery if you are if you are competent uh, person and of legal age. You can refuse to have the surgery. And even if you say, even if somebody says, "Well, you'll die," that's your right. Uh, and if you're doing anything that's different different from a normal surgery, so if you're if a, if a surgeon wants to do a an experimental procedure or something that hasn't been tried before or is more considered more experimental in nature, that has to be noted that you're doing, they're doing things a little differently than they normally would. Usually those things are done in cases where there really isn't many other options, though. And so uh, usually people will uh, agree to do it because they really don't have uh, much other choice. Uh, this is a painting that somebody had of fear. They were asked to paint fear, and that was the... Uh, before surgery, and this is what they what they painted. And there's a scar there, and I don't know what that is. <laughs> it, looks, it looks like somebody looking over them. It scares me. Uh, these are some of the fears that people have. Uh, post post-operative pain, uh, awakening during the surgery. We talked about that as a very common common fear. Not surviving the surgery. You've heard of the expression "dying on the table." This is something that a lot of people are very, very afraid of. So when the medicine goes in, a lot of people really worry and wonder, will I ever, w- will I ever wake up? And the thing to remember is, is that this is a valid fear. I mean, there is, is, this is not uh, uh, invalid. This is not something that cannot happen. There, are pe- there have been occasions where people have not responded well to the anesthesia at all and not woken up or remain in a coma after the surgery anesthesia itself nobody really fully understands how it works because if you think about it you're not sleeping and you're not just being given a strong analgesic i can give you lots of tylenol but if i cut into you're you going to feel it right and you're not asleep because if i if i sneak into your room while you're sound asleep and cut into you you wake up right so what is it where is this world that you're in when you're in anesthesia under anesthesia nobody actually knows they know it works um, but nobody really has a full understanding of what's physiologically happening to you during that, during that time. Um, other fears would be uh, having some kind of horrendous problem afterwards. There was just a story last week in, I think I forget what country, it wasn't in the U.S., I think it was in Europe somewhere. They, somebody went in to get a kidney out and they took the wrong one. You know, a lot of times now they are circling, they're actually marking on the body, this is the place to, you know, where the surgery is going to be, to be done. If you're going to have to take off the left leg, you know, they'll mark, you know, keep this one, keep this leg, you know, don't, don't take this one off uh, for diabe- you know, diabetics losing her foot and things like that. It's, you have to. Uh, this is uh, this is and this is a valid fear that something something will be done in inappropriately. All right, this is a good place to stop. So we're going to stop, and what I want to want you to do now is sign the attendance sheet, and uh, you're supposed to break into pairs with your um, with your draft. Is that what you that's that's the procedure? Okay. Yeah, you can take a break.